0: Let's pause once again after that beautiful hymn and give our thanks to God. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the fact that we are gathered here in this building this morning to sing your praise, to hear your word. And Father, we ask this morning that you would remind us by your spirit as we travel through this passage that we are a people that have been born by grace that are being contoured by grace. Father, help us to go out into the world after this morning and live in grace and share the grace of the gospel with those around us. We pray your help now as we look intently and with alertness at this part of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanna begin uh, on this Thanksgiving Sunday by taking us back 393 years to the year 1623. Uh, Most of us weren't alive at that point, I realize, uh, to a place called Plymouth Colony in New England. A man named William Bradford, who three years earlier had traveled on the Mayflower from Europe to the New World, had recently become the governor of Plymouth Colony. And as governor of the newly founded colony, Bradford issued the following proclamation. I want to read this to you in 1623. He said this. I was going to do it with a British accent, but I'll spare you. I'll do it with an Albertan accent. Inasmuch as the Great Father has given us this year an abundant harvest of corn, wheat, peas, Beans, squashes, and garden vegetables, and has made the forests to abound with game and the sea with fish and clams. And inasmuch as he has protected us from the raids of enemies, has spared us from pestilence and disease, has granted us freedom to worship God according to the dictates of our own conscience, now I, your magistrate, do proclaim that all ye pilgrims with your wives and ye little ones do gather at ye meeting house on ye hill between the hours of 9 and 12 in the daytime on Thursday, November 29th of the year of our Lord, 1,623 and the 3rd, since ye pilgrims landed on ye pilgrim rock, there to listen to ye pastor And render thanksgiving to ye Almighty God for all his blessings. (laughs) So, there, friends, we have the first ever Thanksgiving proclamation. A proclamation that personally I find to be quite God centered and very rich. This morning, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, 2016, you and I have gathered ourselves in this place to worship God and to thank Him for the many blessings that he has poured out on us. Conveniently, the text in 1 Peter that we have under consideration this morning begins with praise to God for the things that he has done. In many ways, this is a fitting text on Thanksgiving Sunday for us to be looking at. I want to invite you to turn with me once again, if you're not there already, to 1 Peter, uh, page 857, if you are using the pew Bible that's in front of you. And this morning, we'll be looking at chapter 1, the passage that was read to us, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. I hope you have it in front of you. It's good to have a Bible in front of you, even though we will have the verses up on screen. Now, in most English Bibles, verses 3 through 12 are divided up nicely into seven or eight English sentences. Uh, which, of course, gives us a manageable English translation. But we should note, just in passing, that in the original Greek from which this section is translated in in our English Bibles, verses 3 through 12 are just one single, long, complex Greek sentence. The New Testament apostles sometimes wrote what contemporary English teachers might consider to be Run-on sentences. So again, verses 3 through 12 in the original Greek are but one long Greek sentence. And what I want to do is to take you on a journey through the corridors of this single long sentence. But we're going to take it in three sections because I think that it really divides nicely into three separate sections. So the first section we're going to walk through is verses 3 through so come with me to 1 Peter 1.3. As I mentioned earlier, Peter begins with praise. Very fitting on Thanksgiving weekend. He says, praise be. He's at worship here. Or in some other English versions, blessed be. Now Peter, we remember, was raised in a Jewish environment, wasn't he? He's doing here what the Hebrew Bible taught him to do. In places like Genesis 14.20 and Ruth four verse fourteen, and 1 Samuel 25.32, we have Old Testament characters declaring, Blessed be the Lord or blessed be the Most High. Peter, in 1 Peter 1.3, is doing exactly the same thing. He's ascribing praise to God. And the gladness in God that Peter declares here acts like a heading over the rest of the passage and infuses and saturates the entire passage that we're looking at today. The passage is characterized by gladness. We need to see that. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, now notice, in his great mercy, or in other English versions, according to his great mercy. And and what is it here that is according to the great mercy of God? In other words, what has the great mercy of God wrought or caused? Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has given us not wrath, since we as sinful human beings deserved wrath from a holy God whom we had offended. No, hallelujah on Thanksgiving morning. Peter says here that according to God's great mercy, he has given us decidedly what we did not deserve as Christians, which is the new birth. Now, I don't know about you, but my biological birth moment in 1970 in the Royal Alexandra Hospital in Edmonton uh, During that time, I was not in any position to take one ounce of credit for my birth. Where my birth into the world is concerned, all credit goes, first of all, to God. A close second would be my mom. Say amen, ladies, who have gone through that. And, of course, to the doctors and nurses who were attending the scene. Similarly... Friends where my new birth is concerned which happened in February of 1990 at the age of 20 years in a school gymnasium in Rexdale Ontario all credit and glory goes to God who is it that has given has given notice the Christian his or her new birth God has done it. Amen. And God alone, the new birth is an undeserved gift that comes from God alone. Only God, only God can take a person who is dead in trespasses and sins and make that person alive in Jesus Christ. And notice very carefully in our passage that it's the new birth. That is first off Peter's lips as a reason to say, praise be to God or blessed be God. Oh, how thankful we should be this Thanksgiving for the new birth. I hope you're with me this morning. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth, notice now, into what? Into a living hope. The word hope suggests future, doesn't it? And the future-oriented hope that Peter has in mind is living. It is a living hope. Something that is living has a vitality about it. Something that is living has potential to grow and has potential to increase, does it not, a living hope. And note carefully, follow with me here, note carefully that Peter says that this new birth into a living hope has come how? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The new birth into a living hope has come through the resurrection. We need to consider this. In other words, what Peter says here is that there is, listen, a direct organic connection between our being born again and the resurrection of Jesus. And furthermore, there is a direct and organic connection between the living hope of the born-again believer and Christ's resurrection we might put it like this because of the bodily resurrection bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead Christians are resurrected spiritually that is born again we have been raised already according to colossians 3:1 and ephesians 2:6 we have been Raised already. And also, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Christians have in them a living, do you have it? A living future hope. A living hope of what? A living hope for our own bodies to be raised physically One day. And be incorruptible. Just like Jesus. We will be raised. One day. We have been raised. And we will be raised. And this is the perspective of the New Testament authors. It is already... But it is not yet. Christian, your current resurrection existence, born again by God's Spirit, is tending toward your bodily resurrection that will take place when God wraps up history. Amen? Amen. Living hope. A Savior who lives right now has physically guaranteed for you eternal physical life in a glorified resurrection body let's read it again praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ in his great mercy he has given us new birth and a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead and verse four work with me here through this text verse four into an inheritance An inheritance that has certain characteristics. Namely, that the Christian's inheritance, says Peter, can never perish, spoil, or fade. Whoa. Whoa. So verse three Track with me here. Verse 3, God gives the new birth to people. Right? We saw that. Verse 4, an inheritance comes to believer as pure gift also. God loves to give. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, the land of Canaan was the inheritance given by God to the people of Israel. In all those years where the people wandered in the wilderness, the promise of the inheritance of the land was something that kept them going. Something that brought them hope in hard times. But eventually Israel, because of her what I would call national malfunction, lost the inheritance of the land. Now, you and I, we said last week, are God's elect exiles. We sojourn as strangers and aliens in this season of history where the old age overlaps with the new. We groan for the new age to overtake and to dispense finally with the old age. It's coming. But during this time of our pilgrimage, where the world around us is sometimes hostile, we are sustained, not by any promise of a mere land called Canaan, but rather we are sustained by the promise, the sure and certain promise, of our Christian inheritance, which in great superiority... To the inheritance promised to Israel is an inheritance, says Peter, that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. And those terms there in verse 4, never perish, spoil, or fade. Think about those terms. Do they not suggest something that is everlasting and eternal? Never perish, spoil, or fade. Peter is describing an inheritance, folks, that is not subject to decay. Imagine that. That is undefiled by the stain of sin. He's talking about an inheritance that will never lose its luster or its beauty. And the best deduction that I could find as to what precisely Peter is talking about here is given by a person who I consider to be the Wayne Gretzky of biblical theology. Now, notice carefully, I did not say the Rocket Richard or the Guy Lafleur of biblical theology. I'm showing my colors. Greg Beale is professor of New Testament and biblical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Concerning the never-perishing, never-spoiling, never-fading inheritance of the believer in Jesus, Beale writes this. Quote, The inheritance is likely the full completion of our salvation... By physical resurrection in a newly created cosmos. (laughs) Yeah, hallelujah, Lord. Christian, your everlasting life, in your everlasting, imperishable, unfading physical body, walking face to face with Jesus Christ in the new creation, it's coming. Amen. It's coming. Amen. Peter continues in verse 4. This inheritance is kept, notice, somebody's keeping it. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. God is the one who does the keeping of our inheritance. And for you, notice. Take this personally, believer. An everlasting body in God's new creation is kept for you. Don't look at anybody else. For you, by God himself. Kept for you who, through faith, verse 5, through faith... Now, faith in the context of the New Testament is trust in God. Through your faith, through through your looking to God in trust and independence, you are shielded. Or we could translate that kept under guard. You're under arrest. It's one way that it's been translated. Shielded, kept under guard, arrested by God's power. But we have to ask the question, kept under guard from what exactly? Shielded from what? It can't be shielded from trials or suffering. Because in verses 6 through 9, Peter is going to talk about both, listen, the necessity and the purpose of trials and suffering. So what is it we're shielded from? I want to side with Tom Schreiner, professor of New Testament interpretation at Southern Seminary. Schreiner sees here in verse 5 a glorious promise. He sees a shielding or a protection from losing faith. when one is encountering suffering and trials. In other words, the shielding here, says Schreiner, is a shielding that God does that sustains faith or preserves faith in the believer. It is a shielding that prevents a fatal lapse into unbelief even as the believer is going through sufferings and trials in life. Our God is so good. He is so good. And this shielding happens, says Peter, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now notice carefully here that in this place, in the New Testament at least, without doubt in this place, salvation is a future thing. We read this carefully and attentively. It, salvation is a future thing for the believer. It's a future thing. Well, but pastor, I thought that as a Christian that, that salvation was in my past. That I'm already saved. Yes, you are as a believer. And a passage, a passage like Ephesians 2.8 tells you explicitly that you have been saved past tense but again in the thought world of the new testament and the new testament authors salvation is also future so salvation is already but salvation is not yet And a verse like first peter 5 not to mention romans 13 11, and others make clear the future aspect of of our salvation. That time still to come. When as believers. We will receive what Wayne Grudem has called. The full possession. Listen and get excited with me. The full possession of all the blessings of our redemption. Which we do not yet enjoy. What am I talking about? I'm talking about resurrection bodies. I'm talking about face to face eternal enjoyment. Enjoyment of the risen physical Jesus Christ. I'm talking about new creation fruits and vegetables that will taste infinitely, infinitely more enjoyable and delicious with our redone taste buds and brains. You like grapefruit now? (laughs) Just wait. (laughs) Just wait. I mean that. And I, ho- and I hope your laughter reflects an excitement and a hope as it's coming. Well, folks, we've traveled through the territory of only the first chunk of today's passage. Verses 3 through 5, just to review, are mostly, mostly about the believer's future. We have a living hope of an unfading inheritance that is being kept for us, and we are being kept by God's power to receive the inheritance and the final salvation. Let's go to the next chunk of the passage, which is verses 6 through 9. Hold on to your seats. Peter says, In all this, in other words, what's he talking about? In all, he's looking back to the, the verses we've just come through, in all those glorious future promises that we've just talked about in all this Christian you greatly rejoice are you with me in greatly rejoicing this Thanksgiving Sunday because of the sure and certain future hope of God that you will be part of as a believer in all this future hope you greatly rejoice though now watch this Though now, for a little while, for how long? For a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Somebody here says, For a little while, I've had to suffer. Pastor, I've suffered a debilitating condition for decades of my life. What what do you mean, a little while? Somebody else says, my whole life. My whole life. As long as I can remember, I've suffered depression. A little while? Another person says... I've suffered relational pain for year upon year now, a little while. Peter's little while here is meant to be compared with the eternity, the never-ending glorious future that he has just talked about in verses 3 through 5. So that even, listen to me carefully, you who are suffering, even if a person suffers grief of one kind or another for all their 75 or 80 or 90 or 100 years, earthly years, that little while is not worthy to be compared to the trillions of centuries that the believer will live in the blessedness of the literal presence of Jesus Christ. Our sufferings here, whatever they may be, however long they may last, are relatively brief. And when we digest that spiritually, friends then rejoicing, the rejoicing that Peter talks about here, even while you are suffering, it becomes real and it becomes possible. In all this, let's keep going, in all this, in your sure, blessed, resplendent, glorious, astonishing, peaceful future, in all this, you rejoice, even though now for a little while, for your little itty-bitty hundred years, you may have now listen you may have what does he say here you may have had to suffer whoa may have had to suffer it's not you may have suffered it's you may have had to Suffer, which does reflect the Greek, the original Greek from which it is translated where the word day dei, D-E-I, is in the text. And day carries the sense of necessity. So in the English Standard Version, for example, the verse reads like this. Though for now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials. If necessary, you've suffered. Now the word necessary implies that something is requisite. That something is essential, does it not? So Peter is saying here, folks, that suffering grief in all kinds of trials may sometimes be requisite may sometimes be necessary. And here, folks, we need to tread carefully. We need to see and comprehend something massive. Namely, your suffering, my suffering, is not, as Thomas Schreiner has put it, is not the result of fate or of Impersonal forces uh, forces of nature. It's not arbitrary. No. In God's economy, we need to see this in the text here, there is a necessity about the sufferings of his kids, all working ultimately for our good. Is suffering fun? By no means. By no means. Suffering hurts. It is a painful thing. Many of us know that right now who are walking through it. Can God sometimes take us out of the suffering by healing us? By removing the painful circumstances in our lives? Yes. He can do it. And sometimes he does. But we need to... See here in 1 Peter that the word of God is telling us about a necessity, a had to, about our suffering. And in other places of the New Testament, we are told, aren't we, about the necessity of traveling down the road of suffering. Acts 14.22, through many tribulations. I'd rather that said through Leisurely fun times we must enter the kingdom of God, but it says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Or Romans 5 3. How is it that a God glorifying endurance comes about in our lives? By suffering. God has fruit. Growing on the tree of suffering. James 1.3. How is a God-honoring steadfastness produced in us? By trials and the testing of our faith. In fact, Peter, in 1 Peter 4.19, goes so far as to say that suffering is according to God's will. Now, many of us hate this. We need to understand that even in our agony, God is up to something glorious and good. Let's keep stepping forward with Peter here. In all this you greatly rejoice, though for a, na- for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trial, All kinds of trials. We know that for Peter's readers, who recently had turned away from idols and false gods to follow hard after Jesus, that they were now under a cultural pressure cooker. Following Christ meant that they were now at odds with many of the values and many of the priorities of the culture. And this worked itself out in suffering of various kinds, relational suffering, socioeconomic suffering religious suffering just to name a few all kinds of trials and now watch where Peter goes in verse 7 so verse 6 taught us that there is a time limit to suffering we suffer only for a little while and verse 6 taught us that suffering in the economy of God is sometimes a necessity You may have had to suffer grief. Now in verse 7 we learn that suffering has, notice, a specific purpose in God's economy. Watch this, friends. This is so crucial because there's so much false teaching in this area. This is so crucial for us to see and grasp and to cling on to and hold on to when we're going through it. Peter says, these... Come with me here. These, and with the word these, he's talking about the various trials that he's just mentioned. These have come so that, notice. Wow, so that. This is a purpose clause. Our good God has a reason for our trials and sufferings. Do your sufferings put you outside of his reign? No. Say that. No. <laughs> Do your sufferings put you outside of the realm of his control? No. no. Is God ever surprised by your sufferings? No. no. Oh, my child is suffering. That's not God. Nothing takes him by surprise, ever. So, what's the reason, Peter, for my cancer? <laughs> What's the reason for my kids running off the rails? What's the reason for the pain in my divorce? For my persecution? What's the reason for my depression? What's the reason for my regret over my past evil? These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold. You know, when the economy suffers, people say, buy out precious metals, gold and silver. Faith is worth more. The proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Friends, listen very closely. The upshot of verse 7 is, Suffering comes in order to stress test our faith, And prove our faith real and authentic and genuine, which in turn will result in glory and praise at the last day. Never get confused by false teachers who will tell you that when suffering comes, well, your faith must have failed. That's the reason you're suffering. That is a hellish falsehood that tragically has been perpetrated in so many contemporary books and YouTube videos and the like. No. Suffering may be necessary, the will of God, according to 1 Peter 4.19, in order to stress test your faith and prove it, Genuine, And here Peter uses the metaphor of gold being refined in a fire. I looked it up this week. Gold melts at 1,064 degrees Celsius. And it boils at 2,700 degrees Celsius. In other words, there is some intensity required. In the process of refining gold by fire. You have to get things hot. In order to burn up everything that. Is not gold, so that you're left with pure, molten gold. Friends, the experience of suffering, the crucible of suffering, can be intense, can it not? It can be agonizing. It can be hot and fiery, but such trial does what? Edmund Clowney was a pastor and theologian who taught at Westminster Seminary for years, and he wrote a commentary on 1 Peter. Clowney wrote, God, listen, God sends trials to strengthen our trust in Him so that our faith will not fail. Our trials, said Clowney, keep us trusting. (laughs) They burn away our self confidence and drive us to our Savior. Savior, Did you hear that? Your trials, believer keep you trusting right where God wants you always. Your trials burn away your self-confidence and drive you to your Savior. Sorry, Joel Osteen. Burn away your self-confidence and drive you to your Savior right where God wants you always. So take heart in your suffering. Live prayerfully in these verses this week. I want to challenge you to do that. Know that God is still on his throne for your good in your sufferings, whatever they are. Peter says that the proven genuineness of our faith is, listen, to result in praise, glory, and honor at the last day when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, notice that it doesn't tell us explicitly whose praise, glory, and honor it is. Now, immediately, many of us will think, well, it must be God's praise, honor, and glory, since those things are always due him. But the other option here is to see the praise, glory, and honor coming to the believer at the last day from God. God gives the believer praise, honor, and glory because the believer's faith has been proven genuine in the crucible of suffering. And after all, there is is New Testament precedent for such an idea. There's Matthew 25's, well done. Good and faithful servant that comes from Jesus to his kids. Praise, honor, and glory toward his kids. Romans 2.29 talks about praise from God coming to certain people. And 1 Corinthians 4.5 describes people receiving commendation from God. I tend to, to side with Schreiner and Clowney here in seeing this as a both and thing. I think that's what's happening here. So praise from God on the last day when Jesus is revealed toward those whose faith has been proven authentic in the crucible of suffering. That faith will shine like a jewel before God in that day, which in turn means, in turn, it means that God himself will be glorified, honored, and praised. Because God is the one who births the faith and sustains the faith. Verses 8 and 9, the last verses of chunk 2. We've got to go quick here. Now, Now, Peter was a person. We remember Peter's story, some of us. Peter was a person who had hung out personally with the incarnate Jesus Christ. Wow. Imagine. Edmund Clowney describes this very beautifully. He says this. He says, Peter, of course, had seen the Lord. His love for Jesus could bring pictures to mind. Jesus in Capernaum, being served supper supper by Peter's mother-in-law, cured of her fever. Jesus on the sea, lifting Peter from the water. You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Jesus in the hall of the high priest, looking at Peter after his denials. Jesus on the cross, Jesus alive again, sitting by the coals of a fire on the shore of the Lake of Galilee. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Peter had seen Jesus and loved him. Notice what Peter says in verse 8. He says to his dear readers, he says to you and I, though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, what an amazing commendation from the apostle here. He says, hey, hey! of course I saw him, hung out with him physically and personally for all that time. But you, amazing faith because of the Holy Spirit's work. You have not seen him and you love him. You are in an intimate connection with him, having never seen him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are, listen, partially filled up. You believe in him and are what? Filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, in verse 6, Peter had talked about rejoicing because of our future hope. Now, in verse 8, he talks about being filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, because of the presence and the fellowship of Jesus that believers enjoy. Listen to what he says. Filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Joy. I said to April the other day that sometimes, sometimes I miss playing jazz drums at a high level because I can recall times playing when my whole being was straining forward and outward on the instrument, expressing something deep inside me that could only be expressed in the vocabulary of music. Music is a way to express what cannot be expressed. In words, Peter talks about inexpressible joy. Do you know what he's talking about? Do you resonate with this? This is a joy that goes beyond the ability of words, it's our deep, profound, wonderful, amazing, heart-hottening joy in Jesus. I resonate with this so much. There are times when I'm even in my study where I just sit back and I worship and I can't even speak because of the things that I'm seeing in the Word. I hope this happens for you too. Inexpressible joy. Sometimes words just won't do. Well, folks, time is short. We still have our final chunk of the passage to walk through. So, in quicker fashion, I promise, uh, let's go to verses 10 through 12. We could do a whole series on these verses. But I want to read the chunk to you, and as I do, I'll make a few comments along the way. So Peter says, look at it with me, concerning this salvation, so he's talking about the salvation that he's just mentioned in verse 9, concerning this salvation, the prophets, that is, the Old Testament prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched Intently, that is, the Old Testament prophets engaged in active, fervent effort. They searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them. Notice very carefully that the Spirit of Christ dwelt in the Old Testament prophets trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he, the Spirit of Christ, predicted the sufferings of the Messiah. Wow. The Spirit of Jesus predicted the sufferings of Jesus through the Old Testament prophets and the glories of Jesus. That would follow. Again, I love Edmund Clowney's meditation on verse 11. Listen to this. With verse 11 in front of him, Clowney says this Christ is the end of prophecy, the goal of history. He is not one example of sufferings and glory among many, his is the suffering that brought salvation, his is the glory that brings the new creation. And then Clowney says, Jesus is therefore not simply the one of whom the prophets speak. He is the one who speaks through the prophets. (laughs) Clowney says, not only does prophecy bear witness to Jesus, but Jesus bears witness through prophecy. I'm so thankful for King Jesus today. Verse 12, it was revealed to them, that is, to the Old Testament (laughs) prophets, listen to this, that they were not serving themselves, but you. So the ministry of the Old Testament prophets was ultimately geared not to their own generation, but to those who lived after the cross and the resurrection, to the church, to Peter's readers, to you and I it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels, listen, even angels long to look into these things. Now, what's Peter doing in verses 10 through 12 in our last chunk? He's saying to his persecuted readers, he's saying to us who may suffer in our day, that living as we do after the cross and after the resurrection, that we, listen, that we are in a much more privileged position than either the Old Testament prophets or the angels of heaven. The prophets strained to understand, flipping pages back and forth, on their knees before the Lord, looking at their own prophecies. They strained to understand what the time and circumstances of the Messiah's suffering would look like. In their time period, all of that was still future. So as Clowney has put it, again, the least disciple of Christ, do you, do you consider yourself the least disciple of Christ? The least disciple of Christ is in a better position to understand Old Testament revelation than the greatest prophet before Christ came. And angels, angels, says Peter, oh, we need to see this. Angels, right now, angels long to look into the things of a Messiah who suffers to redeem human beings. Friends, angels are not on the receiving end of redemption like human beings are. Angels take an intense interest in our situation, in our redemption. They do not experience it like you and I do. So listen, you and I, church, though we struggle with all kinds of trials in our pilgrimage as God's redeemed people, are in a better position, more privileged position, than either uh, the greatest Old Testament prophet or the angels themselves. Luke 10.23, Jesus said this to his disciples, and he says it to us this morning. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Well, our time has officially gone. What are the main takeaways from the three chunks of 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 12? Chunk number one, just to review, verses 3 through 5. Our future inheritance, our future blessing, is a sure and certain thing. Therefore, live now in excited hope and anticipation. Chunk number two, verses six through nine, that future hope aids us in having real joy even in the midst of suffering, which is never meaningless and never futile. God allows suffering in our lives in order to stress test our faith which is going to result in future praise, honor, and glory. And chunk number three, verses 10 through 12, we live in a privileged position as God's kids who live after the cross and resurrection. We live in the day of, of fulfillment, folks. God has worked history He is in control of it. Even while we suffer, we can praise God for the redemption that we have and know in Jesus Christ. And so my prayer as we travel forward this week as sojourners and aliens is that the truths we've touched on today would lift our spirits. That the spirit would bring these things to mind and that they would bring us great consolation no matter what we're facing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you once again for your word for this tremendous section of 1 Peter that we have only scratched the surface on. And I pray, Father, for each person here that you would enliven the hope of this text in our hearts this week. If we are up against it, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, help us, Lord, to remember the things that you have taught us by your apostle and by the spirit working in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.